You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. How lovely to see a full room and fresh faces early in the morning. Welcome to this event, Shaping the World, a pivotal moment in research and innovation for global health. My name is Tamsin Rose, and I'm a senior fellow with Friends of Europe. And I'm absolutely delighted to see so many of you here today to be exploring how we can reinforce and strengthen the EU's role in supporting research for global health. So a couple of key um, aspects about today. There will be photographs of this event, a podcast and a report of the event, which will be published on the Friends of Europe website, so you'll be able to use this and distribute it afterwards. And without any further information from my side, because I know you are really looking forward to hearing from the distinguished panel of speakers that we've got for you today, it gives me great pleasure to announce that today sees the launch of the ninth G-Finder report. And it is embargoed until right now, but you will find copies outside this room. They will also be on the Friends of Europe website. And the executive director um, of the G-Finder, the Policy Cures Research, Nick Chapman, is now going to give us some of the highlights of the content of that report. Nick, you're welcome. Thank you very much, Tamsin, um, and, and welcome all. I think um, my, to show the, the slide, lovely. So uh, welcome, as I say, and I'd just like to start by saying thank you very much um, to Friends of Europe, um, to acknowledge uh, all of the hard work they've done, but also as, as hosts of today's event um, and, and making today possible. Uh, I'd also like to thank the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, and Deutsche Stiftung für Weltbevölkerung, um, our partners, for, for all their assistance in making this possible, and particularly the Foundation for funding the report um, since its inception. I'd like to thank our panellists in advance. Uh, I think um, we are looking forward to uh, a really engaging and exciting discussion. Um, and as well, looking forward to, to closing remarks from both Mr Gates and Commissioner Murtis. So it is wonderful to see such a large audience. Um, surprising that a small uh, think tank from Sydney has such pulling power. Um, uh, and so, I mean, we have uh, no illusions about um, who the star of the show is today. Um, but it's wonderful to, to have such a large audience for um, the launch of the G-Finder report and, and to, to be present and engage in um, sort of uh, the panel discussion and question and answer session. Um, it's probably the largest uh, audience that we've had um, at a G-Finder launch event and probably the first in which um, many of you may not know um, particularly much about who Policy Cures Research is, um, about the G-Finder project and, and why it's important. So. For those of, uh, I guess, our long-standing friends and colleagues in the room, um, today's short presentation won't be uh, getting down into the weeds of the, the G-Funder report as we normally do. 
um, but I'm happy to go through it with you in detail afterwards. And I would like to start by saying a little bit about who Policy Cures Research are, is, uh, and what is GFinder and why it's important. So Policy Cures Research is a, a non-profit independent think tank um, originally established in London and now based in Sydney, Australia. And our entire focus is in trying to work to improve developing world health, particularly focused on, on the advancement of the development of new health technologies uh, for neglected infectious diseases. We have been conducting um, first as policy cures and, and since September last year as policy cures research, um, split off into a separate organisation, the GFinder survey um, or GFinder project for the last nine years. It's been funded since its inception, as I said, um, for, by the, the Gates Foundation. And they were behind, I guess, the conception or, or the, the drivers behind establishing GFinder. And the reason that it's important, the area that we're focused on, um, neglected infectious diseases, are diseases that essentially only or predominantly affect the developing world are diseases where there is no incentive um, from, for, on a for-profit basis for the development of new technologies. Uh, new health technologies. So public in funding and philanthropic funding is absolutely vital. But before GFinder, there was really no conception of, of what was being invested. People were, were working um, in this field and have been for, for well, more than decades. But prior to 2007, um, there was no comprehensive picture of who was investing what, um, where and, and how much and where the gaps are um, and what can be done about it. And so without an understanding of, of what's being invested, it's impossible to make evidence-based policy decisions and funding decisions that are actually going to, um, I guess, advance the development of these health technologies. And so that's why GFinder is important. Um, it allows policymakers, funders and, and advocates to advance the cause that we um, are all, uh, all share as a common goal um, in a way that is based solidly on evidence. And that brings me a little bit to um, the 2014 Ebola outbreak. Prior to, to this, we didn't track um, funding for Ebola R&D, and indeed there was not um, a significant amount of annual investment. Uh, in developing new uh, vaccines or drugs to, to counteract Ebola. Once the outbreak happened, it was clear that we needed to, to track, um, track investment. Uh, and so we began tracking investment in financial year 2014, and this year is the second year that we, we have been tracking Ebola. But Ebola and um, other emerging infectious diseases with epidemic potential uh, like it um, are a little bit different to the, to the neglected diseases that we traditionally include in, in GFinder. The um, nature of the disease is different. Um, the nature of the, the global response and, and the, both the attention and the urgency that this results in um, is different. And so one of the things, I guess, um, uh, to, to frame the discussion today is that we've looked at funding for neglected diseases as distinct from funding for Ebola and other African VHFs. And one of the reasons for that is that there really are two distinct stories in this year's report. Excuse me. So in 2015, 
A little over $3 billion was invested globally in, in neglected diseases and $631 million in Ebola and other African VHFs. Compared to the previous year, funding for neglected diseases was relatively stable. It fell 60 million, a bit over 2%. Funding for uh, Ebola and other African VHFs more than tripled. Looking um, across the whole spectrum of these diseases, it was a 288% increase, nearly fourfold. Looking at Ebola alone, which was the only disease included in, in the 2014 survey, it's still a $411 million increase in a single year, or, or 260% roughly. To look at neglected diseases alone, so. that small decrease is an extension of a concerning ongoing trend. Funding for neglected diseases fell to its lowest level recorded since 2007. Um, the first year of the survey, it's now nearly a third of a billion dollars lower than uh, its peak in 2009, 300 million, or 2012 rather. And the driver of that has been declining public investment. Public funding also fell to its lowest level since 2007. This is important because the public sector, even at, at such declining levels, is responsible for just under two-thirds of global funding for neglected diseases. And the US government um, is the main public funder globally. Their funding fell to the lowest level ever recorded. Although even, even at this low level, they were still responsible for 72% of the global total. In news that's, I guess, more relevant to, or not more relevant, but particularly of interest um, to many in the room, sorry, the European Commission um, was one of the only top funders to increase investment in neglected disease in 2015. It overtook the UK as the largest funder, um, and we're seeing this particularly as the expansion of the budget for EDCTP um, becomes apparent. Um, the first funds are, are released, or VDCDB2 rather, released, um, and the new investment under Horizon 2020. The other thing we saw is that industry invested more than ever before. It's, it, funding increased only marginally over the previous year, but it confirmed a major increase the previous year and was both the highest amount and the highest share of total, public, of total neglected disease funding um, that we've recorded in the survey. And as I said, the EU overtook the UK to become the second largest funder globally. In Ebola and other African VHFs, as I said, funding for Ebola more than tripled in a single year. It increased from um, an already significant amount of a couple of hundred million in 2014 to 631 million in a single year. That's more money that was invested in any neglected disease except for HIV. Um, it was more than the combined total investment in all but four neglected diseases. Um, and for comparative purposes, is just a little under the to a quarter of the total global investment in, in neglected disease R&D. 
neglected diseases uh, responsible for between six and a half and seven million deaths per year in, in 2015, um, and Ebola just a little over 5,000 in, in that calendar year. Similarly to, to neglected disease funding, um, Ebola investment, or Ebola and other African VHF investment, was heavily reliant on the US government. Public funding was three quarters of all investment in, in Ebola R&D, uh, but the US government, again, was three quarters just over three quarters, 78% of, of total public investment in Ebola. But what was different is the massive industry investment. Unlike neglected diseases, where total um, industry investment makes up around 15% of uh, all neglected disease funding globally, in Ebola, uh, the industry contribution was 36% of all investment in 2015. So more than, more than double the share um, that we see traditionally in the neglected disease field. Industry invested more in Ebola and other African VHFs than they did in any um, other neglected disease and more than their combined total investment in um, all neglected diseases except for TB and malaria. So to wrap up, what um, I think would be an interesting uh, thread for the discussion of the panel and the audience Q&A after, is what can we do to arrest this slide in, in investment in neglected diseases? How can we capitalise on the attention, the funding, in particular some of the emergency funding that um, is still hypothecated for this purpose, and the lessons learned to show that we can turn investment uh, in neglected diseases around in a single year, given sufficient attention. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Some really quite thought-provoking figures you've given for us there. Um, it's extraordinary to see how much of an outlier the Ebola figures were last year, and to see as you say, what can we do to learn from that and use that as a trigger to increase the investment in um, global health research for neglected diseases. I would now like to invite the members of the panel to come and join me for a discussion, and I would like to invite Mrs. Ruxanda Dragia-Akli, the Deputy Director General for Research and Innovation at the European Commission, Mrs. Catherine Nabom, she's the Chief Executive Officer at the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics, and Mr. Luc de Brun, who's the president of Global Vaccines at GSK. So, both good and bad news there in the presentation from Nick. Industry significantly stepping up to the plate and investing more. The European Commission becoming a really leading player in investments in neglected diseases. So let me start by addressing each of you a couple of questions and I will open it to the floor for some exchange. Let me start perhaps with the Commission. Um, Mrs. Dragia Ackley, we've seen from the figures that were presented how Ebola was just this extraordinary event, a blip, if you like, in the curve, a lot of political tension, a lot of financial resources thrown at it. What are the achievements, do you think, and the lessons that we could be learned, particularly from the way the Innovative Medicines Initiative, the IMI, uh, addressed Ebola? And what should be the role 
of the IMI in neglected diseases. Thank you very much for the question. And uh, it is a pleasure to be here today with the Friends of Europe and to celebrate the, the G-Finder. I would also like to thank Policy Cures and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for giving us the opportunity to have this discussion today. Uh, so, uh, going directly to your questions, for those who are not familiar with the initiative, uh, the Innovative Medicine Initiative is a public-private partnership. It is a partnership between the European Commission uh, and uh, the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries uh, and uh, Associations. Uh, in response to uh, the WHO uh, call um, announcing uh, the Ebola crisis, uh, we have mobilized extremely fast together uh, with our partners from the industry uh, and um, very rapidly a call has been launched in the context of the Innovative Medicine Initiative. Some 215 million euros have been mobilized. Um, uh, about half and half from the industry and for ourselves. Uh, with, uh, I'm, I'm very happy that uh, some of the people that are involved uh, in the Ebola projects are here today. Um, I, I think that if you're looking at the very rapid response and then the accomplishments, it's not only that a vaccine has progressed through uh, the pipeline, while, uh, of course, uh, we have been very happy that the crisis has stopped and we were not able to go to the last phases of the clinical trials. I would say that that was a blessing. Uh, but also... Uh, a pipeline of medical countermeasures um, have been developed, and I think that um, that is one of the learnings. We have to do much more in this sense, in the peacetime. Uh, so uh, when the next epidemic is striking, uh, we are actually prepared. Um, and uh, in the context of IMI, both the public and the private funders have really well understood the message uh, and the work that has started in the crisis situation is continuing now, including on the diagnostic side, uh, including uh, in looking uh, at the societal acceptance of vaccination uh, in, uh, this, um, in this crisis situation. And uh, I do believe that the industry commitment uh, to work uh, on this public health crisis uh, have been extremely significant, and we are very happy uh, of being, having been able to develop this collaboration. Excellent. And if we think a little bit uh, forward, obviously... We're in 2017, and our thoughts in the, in the Brussels bubble are already turning to what FP9 might look like and what it might include. Can you already give us some early ideas about what you think FP9 might include in terms of R&D into the neglected diseases? Uh, I cannot speculate what the program uh, will involve, um, and, but our commitment to neglected infectious diseases uh, has been very strong. As you have seen, it has increased uh, as of lately, both in the contribution to the European and developing countries clinical trial partnership together with the member states, 
uh, in the context of the Innovative Medicine Initiative, and uh, uh, here I can answer directly, it's not for FP9, but it's to come rather soon. We have another 80 million euros uh, to continue the work uh, on Ebola and other filoviruses in the context of IMI, uh, and very importantly in large or small collaborative projects in this area of infectious diseases and in particular in poverty and neglected infectious diseases. Um, I would also like to mention that um, um, in Horizon 2020, we have worked with the European Investment Bank to develop not only uh, mechanisms of grants, but also of loans for areas such as uh, this one, where there is a clear market failure, uh, and uh, innovative companies that would like to bring forward um, their diagnostic means, their therapies, can actually apply to these loans which are guaranteed by the Commission. Um, and really bring forward to the market those products. So uh, looking uh, at the entire universe of, uh, of measures that we have put in place, uh, I would expect that for the future we would continue this effort. Excellent. Thank you. Now, Nick highlighted in his presentation the extent to which that the overall picture for global health is a mixture of um, public investment, private industry, and philanthropy. And um, certainly public-private partnerships play a big role in global health. And now I'm going to turn to Catherine because you lead a, pub, uh, a PDP. Um, so what do you think are the benefits that a PDP model offers? And then what kind of challenges are there in raising resources? Because Nick's described that the, the last five years or more have been a bit of a dry times for raising funds for global health. What can you share from your organization? Sure. Thanks a lot, first of all, for the invitation and for the great report. For all of the product development partnerships, the GFinder report has been an important resource already over the last years. So neglected diseases lack essential health technologies, and the fight against these diseases lacks essential uh, technologies. Yet what we see across diseases is, is market failures. Product development partnerships bring together collaboration. They bring together resources and competencies from both the public and private sector and essentially translate innovation into products. And importantly, they shepherd these products through a very complex and lengthy pathway to uptake and make sure that they reach patients. Now, FIND, for example, um, delivered 10 new products over the last two years alone, um, and one of our products reached 160 million patients last year. Um, CEPI has shown that they were able to raise over 500 million for outbreak preparedness. So I think there is strong evidence that donors believe in the PDP product delivery model. Yet, when you look at it for the more classical neglected diseases, what we see is a drop by 30% of funding between 2008 and 2015. Now, why is that? I think the answer is complex, but um, by and large, it's difficult to keep the momentum up for challenging um, research questions and, and um, product questions in, in neglected diseases. For example, um, it's difficult 
where success has been elusive, such as for a um, TB vaccine, for a TB point-of-care diagnostic. Um, neglected disease funding competes against domestic issues um, very strongly, health security issues more recently, new initiatives, um, and flavors of the day. Okay, thank you. So, um, given that there's been this, this difficulty of finding a place and securing that place for neglected disease research, you have invested a lot of time in diversing your own funding base. Can you tell us how you did it, given that it was obviously a difficult time to raise funds? Yeah, so FIND was founded 2003 with 100% funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Today, we have a healthy, diversified donor base of 17 donors with 17% of funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Close to 50% of our funding comes from European government, um, and 50% of our funding is core funding. Now, it's been mainly two strategic decisions, I think, that have helped us diversify our funding. One was a conscious step into access, access to, to health technologies, the fact that we do capacity building to ensure successful delivery of the products we work on was first of all in line with the interest of our core donors, but also has allowed us to attract new donors such as UnitAid, such as PEPFAR. Um, and lastly, what we also see is that um, industry self-invests a lot more in R&D when they see a clearer path to uptake. Excellent. Well, you, you've left me with a lovely bridge to our final panel members because um, we've heard from Nick that industry has actually significantly invested more in, in uh, research on neglected disease, even though this is an area of significant market failure, so there's a need for a mix of patterns. And within this, GSK, within, across the industry, has been quite a significant leader in terms of investing in uh, the research for neglected diseases. Catherine's just said that neglected diseases competes with domestic priorities, other emergencies, security issues. Can you give us some insight from your own company how you've managed to keep justifying this focus and investment on it and what advice would you give to other industry players? Thank you very much and uh, congratulations to, uh, to this report. I mean, uh, it's very useful. It shows uh, the progress, but it also shows the gaps and the challenges that we still have. I also want to thank the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for their contribution, not just to the report, but more importantly also to the funding uh, for all the stuff that we're doing, basically. Now, you asked the question why. Um, well, it's clear that if we look at the diseases of the developing world, um, take the big three, TB, malaria, uh, HIV, uh, billions of people are affected by that and still killing millions of people. I mean, I think that's good enough a reason to be very interested in and still invest in R&D there. But also, actually, diseases that only affect, so TB, malaria, HIV, they affect really economies mm -hmm. and uh, put a huge strain on the health systems in the countries. But there are also diseases like lymphatic filariasis or uh, uh, guineo worm, which actually affect individuals, families, and communities. Also, those are worth investing in so to take away that strain. So that's the reason why. But the most important thing is that we've seen the impact of interventions. If you look at the impact of vaccines, 
Um, I see Professor Piot sitting in the, in the room. He gave me a book, No Time to Lose. I'm reading it, actually. It's biography. If I read that in 85, HIV was nowhere, actually. And if we look today, with all the interventions, uh, as the uh, big conferences going on in Seattle, that uh, a positive HIV patient actually has a life expectancy that is comparable to an, an HIV negative. That's amazing progress. If we think about the polio eradication effort, Okay, we had foreseen that it should be eradicated by 2018. It will take a little bit longer because of world circumstances, as, as you said. Um, but again, that is within reach. And with the billions of uh, tablets that we've given for lymphatic filariasis, I mean, it's within reach to eradicate. So I think we should all be very proud of what has been achieved. But of course, we should not be happy with that. It's not good enough. Um, so great progress, but there is great need. Um, you mentioned GSK. I worked 25 years for this company. I'm very proud that we indeed, it's not us saying this, it's Access to Medicines Index that for five times in a row we top it, the Fortune Index as well, that indicates that we're doing great. But, I mean, the industry has a unique position. Why? Because we, and, and you said it already, Catherine, it's pulling through from actually the bench to the patient. But guess what? We cannot do this on our own. If I take just our own vaccines development portfolio, 90 90% is done in collaborative effort. Um, there's no monopoly uh, to, to good science, basically. And we need to have strong collaborations, and I hope that will be a bit the theme, or that is a bit the theme of, of today, right? Um, and we are very happy that we have uh, foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the European Commission, uh, PATH, um, uh, Welcome Trust, I mean, that are really interested to make sure that we share the risk and share the investment. Now, what I'd like to share is what, what does make a good partnership. And I'm not surprised that Ebola has gone up so massively, but actually it's not a good sign because that means we were not ready. We were just scrambling resources to get ready. And it's great to see then that actually in one year time, we know it's all too late, but it's finally there. CEPI in one year with the World Economic Forum has launched and has concretely pulled together a list of three pathogens to go after, and we're uh, finalizing the policies and moving forward. That's great to see. The message here is, if the priority list is clear, we can move fast. I have other examples, but let's stick to Ebola because that was very clearly shown uh, in the numbers. The second piece uh, for collaboration from an industry perspective is have long-term collaborations, strong long-term collaborations. Why? Because the cycle of a pharmaceutical product is 10, 15 years. For a vaccine, it's even longer. And I have a great example, which is a bit symbolic, uh, with uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and with PATH, is the malaria vaccine development. 30 years we're working together, actually, to, to develop that first vaccine. And yes, we are in the final stage now of uh, pilot implementation projects. We've been approved by EMA, but with WHO we do that. And again, luckily, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have never given up. PATH has never given up. And together, we are moving to the last phase. And it will only be a first step to, to control malaria because it's a multidisciplinary approach you need. You, know, you need vector control, you need the, the, the bed nets and hopefully this, this vaccine. So long collaborative uh, effort based upon trust. Um, and the last piece, and that's true for the industry, but as well for funders, is the flexibility of the business models and the flexibility of the funding models. Let's not get stuck in the past, but deal with the future. And I'm very happy 
I mean, Roxandra, we are already discussing, right, to see how do we define, for instance, in vaccines, pre-competitive research. How do we include technology platforms in that? Because it's different from pharmaceuticals. So I think my message is uh, long-term collaboration based upon trust, get some flexibility in the system, um, and make sure the priorities are very clear that we can be focused, because it has been shown, it's been proven. It can be, it can be done. Last but not least, what is needed is a strong political leadership because science without uh, political leadership to continue to be focused on health is very important and sustainable development goals, there are 17, but health is actually, even if it's, if it's number three, it cuts across everything. And so hopefully political leadership will continue to support that. Thank you. And just to help our audiences navigate through the alphabet soup that is global health, uh, you mentioned CEPI without actually describing what it is, this new initiative. Would you just briefly like to say what CEPI is? It's the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation. So basically, uh, it's, it's a coalition of many, many partners because that's the beauty of what happened actually in this step up to deal with the crisis is WHO uh, funders, uh, regulators, everybody sat together European Commission, I mean, we, we all sat together basically to deal with that problem. Um, now, what is important is to get sustainable funding and have policies that can deal with those situations um, so that we can agree how we move forward and how we move forward fast. The most important piece is, and, and you said it, uh, create that during peacetime, is get ready before anything else happens. And GSK uh, has put forward a proposal of bio-preparedness organization in, in Rockville, uh, US, where we want to have a dedicated, focused organization on these uh, technology platforms and those antigens so that we can be ready all the time and not have to wait for that, well, we're not waiting. We do get the phone call and we are a responsible business. You cannot say no, but it's the distraction and the, um, the impact on an organization is massive. So it's great to see this initiative to be better prepared. Excellent. So CEPI is a response to the message, we were not ready, but we will be ready next time. It was a global mobilization. Thank you. I'd now like to open it up to the floor. This is a big audience, and we have a relatively short amount of time to have an exchange. So I invite you to tell me your name your organization, then make either a brief comment or a question. Let me just get a sense of how many people in the room would like to speak. The front of the audience is obviously very lively. I may come to you at the back in the future. Okay, but let's, let's start here. You were the first person. A microphone will come to you. Thank you. It's just to the right. This side. Thank you. Thank you. My name uh, is Alan Fennick. I'm from Imperial College and have worked for many years on neglected tropical diseases. I just wonder, my question is to Nick, that uh, there is a, an aspect of the uh, neglected tropical disease program which is missing, and that is implementation. And I'd like to suggest that while the uh, pharmaceutical industry have um, invested in R&D, they have also given vast numbers of donated drugs, not just GSK, but five or six other companies, and almost a billion people received a free drug against these six or seven neglected tropical diseases. At the same time, the British and American government have increased 
their donations for implementation as opposed to R&D. And I just wonder whether perhaps GFounder could even be expanded to in include implementation as well as R&D. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. I'll take another point as well that we can add into this. Yes. Thank you. Um, my name is Claire Wingfield. I'm with PATH. So great to hear you talk about the, the long-term uh, partnership with um, GSK and, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, along with many other partners. I know you would agree. And congratulations to GFinder for this always useful report. Um, something I'd actually love to hear a little bit more, it was great to see in the report that there has also been more investment from countries like India, Brazil, South Africa. Um, but how do we, does, across sectors, how do we inspire, how do we encourage more investment, not just from these governments, but also from the private sector, which is booming in India in certain sectors and growing in South Africa and in Brazil. And I'd love to hear from any of the panelists any ideas, examples, successes they've heard about leveraging that investment. Excellent. So I think we'll start with you, Nick. Plans to expand the GFinder to include implementation? And then second, anyone else from the panel, how do we get other big governments and players involved? Let's start with Nick. Uh, thanks, Tamsin, and, and, and thanks, Professor Fanwick, for that question. Um, I think the, the first answer is we would love to. Um, the, the second is that really uh, one constraint is, is our capacity to do so, and then the other consideration is what the purpose of GFinder is, um, and it's something that we wrestle with uh, continuously, and um, the meeting that we'll be having uh, later today is to talk about you know, what should GFinder provide people. Um, we think it's really important um, to maintain the focus really on neglected diseases, but as we've seen um, with uh, the Ebola outbreak, and uh, as well, every panellist mentioned um, the pathogens of priority that CEPI will be looking at. There will definitely be interest in tracking investment in both product development and other research for those areas. And then stepping outside product development focused, focused research. People are incredibly interested in understanding and, and measuring and tracking investment in health systems research and implementation research. And it's something that we sort of haven't been had the capacity to extend GFinder to do, but I think it's something that's vital. Whether that's um, you know whether that's done as part of GFinder or whether that's something that a group like the um, WHO Global Observatory on R&D um, could take up and, and fill that gap, that's uh, I, I think a, an area for, for discussion. Excellent. Other members of the panel, Luke, I know you wanted to respond. Well, uh, thank you very much for your comment. Uh, because indeed innovation sitting on a bench means nothing. So the access piece is very important. And again, uh, I think there are great collaborations. If you think about Gavi, uh, the, the Vaccines Alliance to make sure that the immunization gets to the least developed countries. The fact that we've developed tiered pricing to deal with that, but there are many other initiatives uh, like for refugees, we've offered exceptional prices for exceptional circumstances. And that's what I mean with the flexibility. We need to be flexible on how we deal with access as well to make sure that we can pull through 
those innovations. Um, if I may react to the, to the comment on, on, uh, from, from PATH, I mean, it's, it's again, it's the flexibility of the business model. Uh, in Tres Cantos, Spain, we have an open innovation lab where we basically invite scientists to come to work with our compounds. We have a, a lab of compounds that they can scan and then together with our scientists work on projects specifically for uh, uh, leishmaniasis, for instance, for the for, uh, uh, neglected tropical diseases. And um, thinking about our patents, we've, we've, we've made ad adapted our way we go about patents for the developing world an open lab for Africa. So I think that's the invite actually to the audience, to the industry, is to think about flexible modeling, but also to those who fund actually to make sure we can do that in a collaborative effort. Alexander. Um, uh, in the European and developing countries clinical trial partnership, the motto uh, is um, leadership in partnership. Um, the EU member states and the sub-Saharan African countries, which are a part uh, of the initiative, have exactly the same rights. They define together what they are going to work on. The, the sub-Saharan African countries are, are contributing, are contributing in cash to the initiative. Uh, we train scientists, the capacity building um, uh, is ongoing, and very importantly, 70% of our investment in EDCTP is going to African scientists. Uh, by this work that is done together, much more can be achieved, and obviously than the countries that are participating, 14 for the moment from sub-Saharan African countries, uh, are uh, actually uh, involved and incised to, to actually contribute also in cash. So, for instance, South Africa is contributing to, uh, to this uh, endeavor. In, <coughs> sorry, in SEPI, uh, India uh, is participating, and we hope that other countries will, uh, will join. So um, this partnership in leadership uh, is a model that we think works very, very well and we can uh, actually capitalize on it. Excellent. Catherine, have you seen in your diversified donor base some of these new governments, new emerging um, donors coming forward? Yeah, so we see in particular the BRICS countries having an interest and in ramping up funding in diagnostics. Concretely, India is taking first steps to invest in local diagnostic technologies, South Africa as well, and Brazil is also looking at a, at a program towards that. To the comment on access, we would certainly welcome the inclusion of, of implementation funding in the report, and likewise, I think funding for antimicrobial resistance is an important area that could be tracked and is really cross-cutting also for all neglected diseases. Thank you. Let me come back to some of the questions I have in the audience. I had some hands over here. Yes. You need the microphone, sir. Yeah, I want to introduce myself. Uh, I'm Hamoud Dar from Somaliland. Uh, and my question is uh, in reference, you know, to your idea of uh, uh, global mobilization. And uh, also in the context of implementation. Uh, I want to ask uh, to sustain, you know, this momentum, uh, whether uh, there's, uh, of course, there's a great need, you know, for capacity building, especially in developing countries and in Africa, and training, because 
most of these tropical diseases are recurring, uh, coming back often. And I want to ask how uh, this capacity building and training schemes, you know, for especially Africa, uh, figure in the agenda of the, in the, in the report and also in the, in the program. Excellent. Thank you for your question. Just behind you, the, if you pass the mic behind to Mr. Rees. Yes. Good morning. Uh, Angie Rees, Director for Health System Products and the European Commission. I have a question about the, uh, uh, the barriers of uh, regulatory barriers in this, in this uh, uh, achievement, you know, get to the patients with the medicines. It's, we try to help. Uh, there's an international coalition of regulators when we try to discuss, you know, how we can build a regulatory environment across the world, involving, of course, uh, WHO and the World Bank and, and other partners. We try to push also the, by the way, thanks to help um, uh, Melin, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the so-called Article 58, which allowed use the EMA, uh, our European agency power, assessment power, to do scientific assessment to the medicines that can be used in other countries. Uh, this, this, there would be a very interesting seminar beginning of March for African countries in Malta, when the EMA will explain you know, how this may work and how we can, can speed up this process. So, but the question is, you know, we do many things to help, but, but how much these regulatory barriers still influence the movement of, 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 of medicines and, and also medical devices to, to end uh, patients? Excellent. So those two questions are quite closely linked. The issue of, okay, you can invest in research, but you also need local capacity building and training and skills. And then this question here about what about regulatory barriers? You invest in new products, diagnostics, etc. but how about making the regulatory framework? Who on the panel would like to address any of those issues? Do you want to start, Luke, and then perhaps Nick? Yeah, happy to, my, to, the, to the first question. There is indeed great momentum, and to pull this through, I think I look to my left, Europe can take a great leadership role in that. Why? Because I'm convinced that also Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, these big funders, can be a real convening power to pull people together, to share experience, because just to leave it to, to those leaders in Africa, I think that's leaving them alone. It's this, again, collaboration with the convening power. That, that's what, what I would suggest. I think uh, you make a great point about regulatory. Of course, uh, we organize every year a big conference on regulatory convergence. If we see with Brexit and where the world is going, it's actually going the opposite direction. Um, but I, I would really um, make a, want to make a call here to make sure that we care about regulatory convergence. Why? Because it's to get that access faster to the people. Because if we... Um, would incentivize almost or inspire African countries, for instance, to all set up their own regulatory authorities, I think that's not where they should spend their money. They should spend it on pharmacovigilance, on on-the-ground systems, and the developed countries should actually help them, again, through the convening power, to make sure we can have mutual recognition, like we have the WHO pre-qualification. But, I mean, let's, let's, let's spend really time on that, because the goal is not regulatory conversion. The goal is access to those medicines, to those vaccines, in a timely uh, measure, in a timely way. Exactly. So, Roxandra, if I could come to you, the EU isn't just a source of cash. It also has a wealth of experience in regulatory measures and pharmacovigilance and others that it could share. And uh, Andre Rees explained that that is already starting. 
What more can you share with us about how the EU can support the whole chain, not just early uh, diagnosis and investment in drugs, but actually then implementation and getting drugs to people where they need it? Um, I think that Andre can answer better than I do this particular question. Uh, but uh, if we are combining the, the, the two questions, um, in the context of EDCTP, a big part is the training, uh, and it is the capacity building. Um, uh, and Michael McKenga, the executive director, is here in the room with us. He might want to comment uh, upon it. Um, uh, at the beginning of the initiative, one of the big efforts that we have all undertaken together with the African countries uh, was the development of networks of excellence, uh, of uh, ethical and regulatory uh, um, bodies that uh, actually were facilitating the implementation of those clinical trials. In the absence of the regulatory uh, and ethical bodies, one couldn't even have envisioned uh, that those clinical trials were taking place. So uh, a lot have been achieved, and with the involvement uh, of the sub-Saharan African countries, of these 14 countries, in the initiative, uh, working together to develop the strategic research agenda, including elements uh, of pharmacovigilance uh, and um, uh, issues that can feed into the regulatory process. Uh, I think that um, the, um, the push towards the full cycle uh, is there. Excellent. Thank you. Perhaps if you want to add something now, or should I bring in a few more questions? Would you like to... Just briefly, so regulatory certainly is an issue. I just want to highlight also that the importance of health systems and strong health systems was highlighted at the example of Ebola, but much beyond, um, and is, is as critical as addressing the regulatory barrier. Yes, I would agree with that. Access to medicines means nothing unless there's actually doctors and nurses to prescribe and support and follow. You make a, a key point. We had a question back there, yes, Fraser, if we could get you a mic, and then I yes, this, is this gentleman, but let's start here. Thank you, Tamsin. My name is Fraser Goodwin. I'm with the Save the Children EU office here in Brussels. Uh, I just wanted to support a lot of the messages I'm getting from the panel about strong health systems, about a more comprehensive approach to why we're doing health R&D, and that is the end impact and improving health and well-being, SDG3, essentially. What I, what I really want to hear now, on top of that support to those uh, approaches, is what the panel hopes to achieve with the winds blowing a little bit of contrary to that, that vision, whether it's the impact that Brexit has on uh, increased regulation or complexities in trade, or whether it's the new administration in the White House that might have a, 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 a less than scientifically rigorous approach to, to health care, what is the various uh, stakeholder groups represented in the panel willing to do to address those, those, those uncertainties and complexities in our VUCA world? So, you've given us a, a, a tough question. Let me also invite this gentleman, because I think you were going to respond on the earlier point. Um, I'm Michael McCung, Executive Director for the European and Developing Countries Clinical Trials Partnership. Um, just to add on to what Roxandra said, EDCTP has a model that we feel and we have seen to work, which is involving partnership from, the, from member states in Europe, partnership member states from Africa and the European Union, working together 
in the acceleration of, this pro uh, of, acceleration of the development of products. But what is key and resonates with what has been said, starting with priority setting, having clarity of priorities, not determined from one end, but is consultative, involving the countries that are actually experiencing the problem. Secondly, the development of partnership for the long term. Now, partnership that is involving the countries that are affected by the problem. And with this, this is where we've also invested heavily in developing scientific leadership and ownership so that we promote co-ownership of what is being done. Now, this is really very, very important, both on the side of research, being able to translate scientific excellence to what is going to be uh, policy and change uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. This also uh, affects ethics and regulatory. This is an area where we've been working to strengthen the um, enabling environment for research. It shouldn't be done and uh, decisions made from the north. It has to involve the African countries. Thank you. I have one plea, and this is on the side of collaboration. The, meet, the need is really big, and there are many players. This is where the public, partner, the public funders and the philanthropic organizations, the private sector, working together. And this is where I call upon our friends, the Bill and Belinda Gates, and all the partners from industry to work with us so that we tackle the problem together. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, panel, I'm going to put to you the very challenging questions we just had there from the audience. The winds of change are blowing. Um, Nick, you highlighted just how big a piece of the picture U.S. public investment is in R&D. And that is, if it hasn't already happened, is highly likely to change. As a result of Brexit, if and when it happens, the EU budget will be affected, as will be the players in research and development. If I could ask you to just look forward in a crystal ball, the extent to which we can, how might these affect, this affect the overall picture of readiness to invest in global health and neglected diseases, bearing in mind that just a few days ago, Mr. Jan Semenza from the uh, European Center for Disease Control made a, a public speech where he said 61% of all public health outbreaks in the EU have as their origin globalization or environments such as climate change. So there's an acknowledgement that health in Europe is intimately connected with global health. But the domestic political environment for making that case and arguing that money should be invested in that is going to be quite difficult. So panel, are you optimistic? Where do you think we can either make a good argument or there's room for optimism in the overall picture? Particularly as Nick, you started off by saying we're in a downward trend, and we have been for a number of years. I'll start with you, Nick. Are you optimistic? Um, I'm always optimistic. But I, I, I think, uh, well, I mean, we, we, we called today a pivotal moment, and I think um, it, it really is. Um, uh, you know, we talk about the, um, as you said, you know, the, the incredible contribution of the US government, um, you know, around three-quarters of uh, global public funding for neglected disease R&D, more than that in Ebola. Um, it is 
trending down. It's declined the last three years, and who knows what's going to happen um, given the rhetoric of the new administration. But even after being you know, a quarter of a billion dollars lower than it was four years ago, the US is still the only government um, to be approaching the 0.1% uh, target um, mentioned by the CEWG. Um, and its, its contribution is, is, is ten times larger than the next largest public funder. So, especially given the environment or the, that we may be seeing over the next four years, and hopefully not more than that, um, is that it, you know, now is the time for the rest of the world, and it's not just Europe, that is everyone, it's you know, the BRICS, it, it's countries, um, all countries, to, to work towards achieving um, or trying to achieve that CEWG target. Um, I would say the other reason to be optimistic about the UK, well, both concerning, I mean, the UK is far and away the largest contributor of all the, the UK, EU member states to EDCDP, um, which triggers uh, the match funding uh, from the EU budget. And so any diminution of that funding would be of huge concern. But I think that the positive statements from um, the UK Development Minister recently uh, and their commitment to increase their investment in global health and in global health research particularly are, are positive signs. Catherine, I don't know if you want to comment on this. You're, you're an organisation that obviously has to regularly fundraise from different donors and governments. How do you think the, the environment's going to be likely for you in the next few years? Well, it would be wrong to say that we're not hugely concerned, right? So we already see first effects. Some of our U.S. government funding for implementation, product implementation, has frozen. Um, we've been asked by DFID to help them with a case to show how our tuberculosis technologies are actually have become the mainstay for TB control in the U.K. to make the case... Um, and show that investment in neglected diseases also has an effect in, in UK and beyond. Um, I think, well, we are working on our side on the evidence base to show how important it is to invest in neglected diseases and how important it is for the states and beyond. And we see first signs that, for example, China steps up uh, when it comes to implementation of technology and lab laboratory strengthening in Africa. So I think there are governments that will see this as an opportunity. Excellent. Alexander, do you want to comment? Yes, uh, I think that you are talking uh, about money, but not the impact of that money on what we can achieve. Uh, we have all talked about collaboration, uh, and uh, because of this collaboration and the impact that we had um, as of lately, much more has been achieved uh, with possibly this diminished amount uh, of, uh, of investment. Uh, collaboration have occurred uh, with the industry, between the member states, uh, and globally. Uh, I, uh, I do believe that an initiative such as CEPI uh, that involves uh, a lot of governments, uh, partners around the globe, developing a common strategic research agenda uh, in a way using the money that is there in a much more strategic manner uh, where each of us will avoid duplication, uh, will um, be able to push through the entire research and innovation cycle with much more facility because we do have the industry uh, involved uh, in the initiative will create a very different dynamics. So I wouldn't focus on how much, but how are we going to valorize it? Okay. 
Let me throw a, a speculative question back at you, Nick. You mentioned that 6.5 million people a year are dying of neglected diseases in developing countries. You know, that's a serious loss of life. And perhaps the logic behind the start of the G-Finder was to say, if we track the money, we will be able to highlight the need that is there, that's unmet, etc. So over time, given that there's been this money invested, and we've, uh, both Luke and Alexander have said, well, actually, we're starting to have impact here now. We're talking about eradication of some diseases. This, the pipelines are now much fuller than they were. Do you foresee a time when you don't need to track money going into neglected diseases because there won't be neglected diseases, where money alone won't be the answer to the picture? Uh, yeah, I, I, the, our hope, fervent hope, is to um, basically go out of, uh, you know, no longer have to do what we do um, because it won't be necessary anymore. And I think that I certainly see that in the future. I mean, we've already seen in malaria with um, the rollout of, of ACTs and RDT, rapid diagnostic tests, um, and longer-lasting bed nets, you know, mortality halving in the last decade. Um, we've seen particularly under five mortality in children decelerating enormously. Um, and so one of the challenges then is to both measure that impact as it comes, and then it's hard because the time frame between investing in the start of a, a new product and, and when that actually achieves impact um, you know, in the field is, is a long time. Um, but working out how best to track what the impact of our efforts are, are having um, is important. Excellent. Thank you. I have a question here in the front. Can I get a microphone? And a second question there. And I think that will be the last two questions we have time for. Microphone. It's coming. Good morning. Um, I'm Milaria Capua. I'm from the University of Florida. And um, in one of my previous lives, I used to work with bird flu. And it seems to me that um, we're much better off now than where we were with bird flu but we are still talking about the same things, capitalize on existing developments and collaborating and lots of things that I've heard. Now my question is, the funding mechanisms by which we approach emerging infections and neglected diseases generally have a rather short cycle. So we're talking about five years, maximum seven years. Now, because this problem of neglected diseases is not going to disappear and we are going to have other emergencies, like Zika, for example, wouldn't it be time that we look into a, an extended commitment so that actually we can plan for 15 years or 20 years of work and so that capitalizing on existing developments and achievements is actually part of that same um, program because or else it becomes a stop and go, a stop and go, and we do tend to waste a lot of resources. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's a, a useful question that I think we'll give to the panel for their last comment. And it gives me great pleasure to invite our, our two closing speakers to come and join us on the panel, um, Mr. Bill Gates and Commissioner Carlos Modas.
And before I ask you to, to give some comments, the, the question we've just been posed from the audience is quite valuable because throughout the conversations we've had so far, there's the value of long-term commitment, long-term collaboration has come out, and yet funding cycles are short, five to seven years. So we were asked, how do we make 15 or 20-year commitments to planning and investment? So just before I pass over the floor to our two final speakers, is there anyone from the panel who could give a comment on that? And Roxandra, I'm looking at you. I know the Commission has shorter cycles than seven years. Seven years is longer than most member states, so uh, I think that we have an advantage there. But um, and, uh, Ilaria knows very well that, uh, in fact, while um, to develop a certain product might take 10, 15 years, science is not a linear process. You may have stops and goes and learnings from uh, other initiatives that are ongoing, other projects, other programs. Uh, so um, while the overall commitment is indeed, as we have heard, uh, to tackle the issues of, of poverty-related diseases, of neglected diseases. So it doesn't mean that the same project needs to be funded for 15 years in a row. And keeping this element of competition and excellence in science is essential in order for us to progress as fast as possible. Excellent. Would you like to just well, say I, I can only say that I agree. Sustainable funding and perspective, giving each other perspective is absolutely needed. But I agree as well that you need to build in moments of evaluation. If you call that a new budget cycle, that's something different, of course. But I, I agree with your comment. So that's really an insurance and a perspective for the future is needed. Well, I think that, that is an excellent moment to pass to our two closing speakers because the need for dialogue, exchange, regular evaluation, long-term commitments to working together to achieve health outcomes and impacts has been the theme that we've come to, to talk about. So let's now hear from Mr. Gates and Mr. Modas, partners in collaboration about their vision about where we go forward. Well, welcome. Uh, it, talking about uh, research uh, for these neglected diseases is, uh, I think, super important. And uh, every year when the G-Finder report comes out, we get a chance to look at the positive trends and the, the disappointing trends and remind people how important this work is. Uh, only through this work will we uh, beat HIV. In fact, Unless we have innovations coming through this pipeline, the population growth, uh, the limitations of our current tools means that HIV will actually go back up uh, and set new records uh, in terms of death cost. So this pipeline is crucial for every one of these diseases, including uh, the big three, tuberculosis, where we need new drugs and a vaccine, HIV, where we need uh, tools of protection, uh, uh, a vaccine, and others. Uh, and then malaria, which is a great example of a disease where if we continue to rely on the same tools, the same bed nets, and the same uh, drugs, that uh, the disease evolves around those as it has many times. And so even to stay and have this miraculous progress of a million deaths down to a half million deaths, we've got to drive the innovation pipeline. Uh, the, the total uh, is disappointing. That is, the amount of research on these neglected diseases 
has not gone up. It's, it's even gone down somewhat. Uh, within that picture, there are a few things that are, are positive. Uh, you know, we're certainly thankful that the European Commission uh, uh, came in in the, the second spot there. Uh, we wish it took four or five hundred million to come into second as opposed to 125 million, but uh, still we appreciate the great relationship we have and the, the catalytic nature of that funding. Uh, we also saw uh, in the Ebola category a fairly quick response, uh, and that uh, pharma stepped up in a big way uh, when they got the call. The commission was able to get IMI money out. Uh, we got engaged in that, uh, and I think the lesson out of uh, Ebola, where it was all done after the epidemic came along, uh, those lef- lessons have come together in the creation of CEPI. And uh, so CEPI, I think, is very hopeful that we're going to use new platforms, uh, DNA, RNA-type platforms, and uh, go after some specific pathogens that the scientific committee rated as high risk, and not only come up with, say, a MERS or uh, NEPA vaccine, do it on top of those platforms where the promise is that even if an unknown pathogen came along, the chance that we could quickly turn around and manufacture a breakthrough vaccine would be far, far better uh, than we've ever had in the past. So, uh, you know, the overall picture is not uh, developing uh, as much as we'd like to see it. Uh, Our foundation is very committed to the long term. Uh, You know, this is the area uh, that we work in. Uh, You know, 20 years from now, we'll still be working in this area. The only thing that would get us out of this area is if we managed to eradicate these diseases. Uh, And I have to say that's probably a lifetime of work because some of them are are very, very difficult. In fact, uh, by having a success with polio, I think that'll energize the field and get us to go really look at, okay, what does it take to do measles and do malaria? Uh, And that means new innovative tools that uh, meet a demanding profile. So I think the transparency of this report uh, is helpful to us. It's a reminder that we should thank everybody who contributes, but uh, we need to figure out how to draw in uh, more resources. There's no doubt this field could absorb double the resources in here super, super effectively with very uh, high returns. Excellent. Thank you. Let me now pass the floor to Commissioner Modis. It's probably at the very early time of thinking within the Commission and in the dialogue with member states to start thinking about the next financial framework. We've seen how critical the EU and the European Commission funding is in the overall picture. What can you share with us already about planning and thinking for the way forward and seeing yourself in partnership with others? Thank you very much. Uh, good uh, afternoon, uh, almost afternoon to everyone. Great pleasure to, to be here. You know, um, I was thinking about my first trip as a commissioner in November 2014 to South Africa to visit our EDCTP project. And it was really one of those moments where you feel that the taxpayer's money is going to the right place. And one of the things that we've lost uh, in Europe in the last 15 years is a connection with the people. And so uh, for our project to thrive, 
uh, in the future for the European Union to be united, I think we have to reconnect to the people. And there are several ways that we have to do it and several ways that we are doing it. But I think health is the most powerful example of how the European Union can connect to the people in so many different ways. And so for us, uh, from the very beginning, we decided that for the next framework program, for the future, we would look at four sectors that for us were really at the brink uh, of changing. Basically food, water, health and energy. And then how could we invest in these four sectors in a way that we will involve the digital transformation. And so for us, is about thinking in the next framework program, not just health because of health, because, but because of the fact that health can reconnect us with the European people. And so we will uh, uh, launch different, uh, different tools. One uh, is a fund of funds, uh, a venture capital fund of funds, because we know that in health, in energy, in food and water, the difficult thing in Europe is not about creating a company, is to scale up that company. How many entrepreneurs come to me and tell me, look, I've created this company, but now I need 50, 60 million. And there's no one in Europe that can invest 50, 60 million. Because, you know, the average fund, the average venture capital fund in Europe is actually 60 million. So no venture capital fund will put 60 million in a project. And so we have to help companies to do that scale up. And that's exactly one of the areas that we find we have to do it in a different way. The second point was a point that we were just talking before getting in, is that we have to be able to act and not react. And when we arrived in November 2014, we had such an amazing example of how to act quickly, which was the Ebola. We were able to get together 200 million uh, in a very flexible way with the private sector to uh, attack the problem of the Ebola. But you know what? Two years later, nobody is talking about it. Nobody knows that we developed the vaccine uh, and that we were really with the private sector doing something that changed the world. People talk about the private companies, but they don't talk about the taxpayers' money. And so I think that there's a, also a point of how can we be more visible as the European Commission. And that's why I'm so happy that you are all here today, but especially thankful to the Gates Foundation and to uh, Bill Gates to take this interest on uh, European research. So we will uh, create ways in FP9, our next framework program, of being more flexible. We have to act quickly, and so that's one of the priorities. Um, and then, for us, I think is a little bit the problem of today. Today, the problems that you have in your own country uh, are not just your problems, are the problems of everyone. And so the change of the future, the change of how the member states understand that, that we cannot act alone, and this is the case of terrorism, this is the case of refugees, but health is one of the best examples that alone we can't do it. So this is a little bit of the, um, uh, the thoughts that I wanted to put forward uh, for the next framework program uh, and tell you that we are committed. This is a great priority for the European Union and uh, I'm very glad to be here, so thank you. Excellent, thank you.
We have a few minutes left, and I know there will be a lot of interest in this room, so I can take one question each for Mr. Modes and Mr. Gates. Can I see who has a question that they would like to pose? I have one hand up over here. Yes, let's give you a microphone. And I have one hand up at the back. You were the first hands that I saw, so you can put it forward. Yes. Thomas Arnold from DG uh, Research and Innovation. So I have a question to uh, Bill Gates. In addition to the issues discussed today, there are even more uh, public health issues. So one is uh, obesity. According to The Lancet, there are now globally more people obese than people undernourished, and it's getting worse. Often okay. it's linked to uh, convergence to current patterns of Western diets. Now the question, is there not a cause for major global action to move humanity forward to something new, maybe still to be invented, maybe a convergence 2.0 or convergence 4.0? A couple okay. of reports that could inspire us, from, for instance, from the World Resource Institute in Washington, D.C., uh, a report on shifting diets for Thanks. a couple we've of billions of We've got people. your question. We have the question at the back. Thank you. Hello, my name is Willow Brook. I work with the TB Alliance, looking for new medicine against TB. I think I would want to reiterate the question that Mr. Gates sort of implicitly asked and asked Mr. Motors to respond. Current investment in global health is woefully inadequate. What can the EU do to get past that 125 million consistently, not because there's a crisis, and invest more in products for global health and innovation? Okay, so we have our question each. Mr. Gates, neglected disease isn't the only global health burden. Obesity is obviously one of the areas because of changing lifestyles. How do you see priority setting in global health? And Mr. Moraes, how do we make a consistent, the Ebola outlier in terms of cash, the consistent future? Mr. Gates. Well, I, I do think among the miracles we can expect over the next 20 years from uh, biological discovery is a set of tools to deal with obesity. Obesity is not a priority for the Gates Foundation because we look at the things that are primarily in the poor countries where there's a huge market failure uh, for example, for malaria, uh, that because there's no market, unless we have government aid or philanthropy, it simply won't be a uh, priority to develop things like the vaccine. It turns out that undernutrition, though, is a huge problem. Over 40% of the kids in Africa never uh, develop physically or mentally. And the basic understanding of what's going on in terms of food-seeking behavior and the, the gut, um, we've had to fund basic research in that area, uh, particularly around the microbiome. Yeah. And the insights that we're gaining uh, through that research funding, I believe, will be as powerful for helping us understand overnutrition as it is uh, for understanding undernutrition. So yes, uh, it's, it's something that... Uh, needs to be invested in. Uh, the pathways are very common. Uh, we have some very deep insights into the microbiome that uh, uh, we're actually taking into intervention trials uh, in the next few years. Mr. Modas. So if I understand the question, was like how can we have more money for research, science, and innovation? And I think that uh, uh, we have to connect in a different way that we were doing so far. I think that the constituency knows about it. 
the people that study innovation in science know about it, but the people on the street, they are not aware of it. And if we want the European politicians to react because politicians react to incentives, it's about creating tools in the next program and uh, in the future that you can get innovation in science as a priority to the people. I mean, I'm a product of that. Uh, I'm a product of one of the best tools of Europe, which is the Erasmus program. I come from a poor family from the south of Portugal that would never thought that I could even go to university in my home country, not even imagine that I could go to university outside uh, of Portugal. And the Erasmus program was the best tool in between the European Union and the people. So we have to create ways, and I ask for your help too, how can we involve society in a way that society understands the value of innovation and science, and then politicians react to it. I would probably paraphrase the president of China, Xi Jinping, that uh, two years ago said, uh, we've tried monetary policies, uh, we have tried fiscal policies, uh, and now it's time to try innovation in science as a policy, and for that we have to get a budget that is more balanced and the choices are clear to innovation in science. So it's not a question to tell it in this room. It's a question that people in the street understand the value. And I think that we're still far from it uh, because people don't see that value. They see it along the way. They see it in health when they go to the doctor. They see it when they are sick, but they don't see it in their everyday life. So that's a little bit my fight, is how can my voice go outside of this room to people that normally uh, don't, uh, are part of our constituency, because that's the only way that I can, can convince the member states to do it. This very quick second point, it depends on the political will of prime ministers in Europe to put the ministers of science as the top ministers of the government. I mean, because today you have ministers of science that want to actually to invest more, but then who calls the shots? The ministers of finance. So the ministers of finance have to be on board. Uh, so the ministers of science have to be important characters, important politicians in the government. So you have to work uh, that also in the ecosystem. So that's a little bit what, uh, what we have to do to get uh, it in the agenda. I'm very sorry that I don't see uh, as many as it should prime ministers in Europe talking about science and innovation, and I see it sometimes in other parts of the world. So, so we have to get better at it in the political agenda. Excellent. Thank you very much. And with that, I would like to draw our debate to a close. Just to recap, we have a very full room here today. So there's obviously clearly an interest in understanding the strategic role of innovation, as you've just outlined for us. But the conversation is really only just beginning, not just about the broader future of Europe, but how that would be enacted through a future budget and framework and allocations and priorities. Throughout the conversation we've had, we've talked about the need for political leadership and agreed priority setting. If we were not ready, and Ebola showed us how we were not ready, some of the elements have now been put in place. The partnerships are there, the structures are there, the pipelines and the ways of working together have been put in place. And it would really be a shame if that is lost if we can't 
move things uh, forward. So we very much count on the rest of you after today going away, taking a copy of the report, reading it, using it, joining the conversation that Friends of Europe will be holding on their debating platforms and through ongoing activities. If we can keep the consistent message about how health, it's not global health and European health, health is global. It matters to us all and we're all connected. And keep that message through in the next few years. Hopefully Nick will be out of a job in 10 years. Thank you all for your time and attention.